Well, turn with me now in God's Word to John chapter 11. John 11, you can see in our bulletin that we're going to be focusing on three verses, especially verses 25 through 27. But I will read the story around those verses so that we can appreciate where the jewel of these three verses is set. John 11, beginning at verse 1, hear now the word of God. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day, if anyone Walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. 
Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word We thank you for this remarkable episode recorded for us here. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold the wonders that are here to be seen. And comfort us, we pray. Comfort us with the thought of resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, and the prospect now of our own. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. A little over a year ago, so way back in June of 2020, I preached for us a message that was entitled, What It's Like When You Come Down from the Mountain." what it's like when you come down from the mountain. And maybe you remember that was our theme that particular Sunday, way back in June of 2020, a little over a year ago. That was our theme then because that's the position that our family was in at the time. We had gotten away to the mountains, the Blue Ridge Mountains, elevation 3,410 feet where we were. And by the next Sunday, we'd come down. We'd come back down to Fairfax, elevation just 410 feet. No 3,000, just just 410. And so that Sunday morning in June, 
We looked at some Bible stories in which various people came down from various mountains of their own, and what they found when they came down was all manner of sin and chaos and confusion. Moses and Elijah and even Jesus himself. What it's like when you come down from the mountain. Well, this morning, now it's over a year later, here in July of 2021, this morning the Wolf family has just come back down from the mountain again. Although this time it was not the Blue Ridge Mountains, this time it was the peaks of the Pacific Northwest, this time it was Mount Rainier, and even Mount St. Helens. To be sure, we didn't go to the very tops of those Mountains, but even where we were hiking and walking, we were way higher than we ever got last summer. I'll say, by the way, we kept our distance from Mount St. Helens, although even where we were standing, it wouldn't have made too much of a difference on the morning of May 18th, 1980. Even where we were standing, even 41 years later, there were still these ghostly, massive, shredded tree stumps where volcanic ash had blasted off the side of that mountain at approximately 500 miles an hour, which is certainly an experience that reminds you of your own frailty as you're standing there and looking at those, those stumps. In any case, here we are again. Once again, we've come back down from the mountain, and once again, the question becomes, what have we found waiting for us? And in a word, what we've found is death. But crucially, now putting it in in three words and not just one, what we have found as a family is death in Jesus. Death in Christ. We got home from our trip on Friday the 23rd, and less than 24 hours later, There we were in the first United Methodist Church of Collingswood, New Jersey. And we were there for a memorial service for Joy Christensen Evans, a dear family friend on Christie's side who fell asleep in the Lord around two weeks before. So that, that service was on Saturday the 24th, right after we got back. And then less than a week after that, just two days ago, so this past Friday... There I was in the St. John's United Methodist Church of Seaford, Delaware, and I was there for a memorial service for George Clinton Godfrey, a dear family friend on my side who fell asleep in the Lord back in January. So that memorial service was just two days ago. That was Friday. So two services in less than a week I have been returning to my Methodist roots. So what's it like when you come down from the mountain? What do you find? What we have found is death in Jesus. But make no mistake, it is the in Jesus that makes all the difference. It is the in Christ that turns death into life. We have found life in Jesus as we have come down from the mountain. We have found life in him. Joy did. George did. Every Christian does. 
two memorial services in less than one week. In the entire history of the Christian church, it's hard to imagine that there have been many funerals and memorial services that did not include this Bible passage being read, or at least these phrases being invoked. John 11, especially verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said that to Martha that day. Through the scriptures, he's been saying it to Christians every day, ever since, including to us today. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Admittedly, this is not a story, John 11, in which Jesus himself comes down from a mountain, not not physically anyway. In fact, if anything, in terms of topography, he would have had to go up to Bethany from where he'd been. But I will say this, as you think about the Gospel of John, the whole trajectory of the Gospel of John, indeed the Gospel that you find in John, is that the Son of God came down. Not from a physical mountain, not not from a topographical height. No, the Son of God came down from the very glory of heaven. And when he did, what did he find? He found death in this world that he entered into. He found death, but he found it in order to conquer it. The Son of God came down from the loftiest heights, the very glory of heaven, and when he did, he found death, and he found it in order to destroy it on behalf of his people. And what he does here in chapter 11 gives us a glimpse of that. This story is relatively well-known for Bible stories, to the point that the very name Lazarus has become something of a one-word, one-name symbol, even in popular culture, even in prose and poetry, a symbol for the very idea of coming back from the dead, Lazarus. Jesus learns that his friend Lazarus has died. Naturally, Lazarus's sisters, Martha and Mary, they're grieving. There's a whole company of those who are grieving with them. Many wept, and it's here that we're told Jesus wept too. And finally, Jesus calls Lazarus out from the tomb, and Lazarus lives again. But even before he does that, even before Jesus calls Lazarus back, he wants to make sure that Martha really understands what's going on here. More to the point, he wants to make sure that Martha really understands who he is and what it means that he is who he is, what it means for Lazarus, what it means for Martha herself. So, backing up to verse 21, in fact, these are the verses I put there in your bulletin, if that helps. This conversation goes on. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What what a poignant thing that is to say. And later, Mary says it to him as well. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, 
I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So, clearly, there are some things that Martha understands. She understands that Jesus, whom she calls Lord, she understands that he stands in some kind of unique relationship to God. And she also understands, she has some sense that there is resurrection in store for the people of God. So she gets all that. Jesus, Jesus wants to make sure that she gets the connection. The connection between who he is right now and the prospect of resurrection in the future that she's counting on. He wants to make that clear to her. And what he says next is astounding beginning in verse 25. Let me say there are four points here that I'm going to want to highlight in these verses, four moments in this brief back and forth between Jesus and Martha, and they are these, the claim, the promise, the question, and the answer. Those four, the claim, the promise, the question, and the answer. We'll start with the claim, verse 25, a claim that he makes about himself. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. So he's saying, in effect, Martha, you're absolutely right. There's resurrection in store for the people of God. But do you understand, Martha, that's true because of me, because of who I am and what I am. I am the resurrection and the life. And stop and think about each of those two, resurrection and life. First of all, what is resurrection? This is something we've talked about before. Resurrection, in the fullest biblical sense, it's not just coming back. I mean, it's not coming back from death so as to return to this life the way it was before, the way you knew it before. Resurrection is more than that. It's better than that. It's higher than that. Resurrection, in the fullest biblical sense, is being raised to a life that is beyond death, that is higher than death. Resurrection, in the fullest sense, is being glorified like never before and not just being brought back to what you had before. And Jesus can say here, I am the resurrection. He can make that astounding claim about himself because later on, and I mean nine chapters later in the Gospel of John, he is himself going to be the risen one. He's going to be raised from the dead. And not only that, but then much later on, and by that I mean the end of the age, he's going to raise us too. He's going to raise believers like you and me and Lazarus. He's going to raise us in the sense that at the end of the age, he's going to reintegrate us, body and soul, bodies and souls glorified for the world to come. I am the resurrection. And then second of all, what is life? Thinking about this pair. That's the other one. I am the life. What is life? Well, Jesus answers that question 
six chapters later in the Gospel of John, in chapter 17. And let me say, brief advertisement on Wednesday evenings, we're going to get into this when we take a look at this part of the Gospel of John on Wednesday evenings. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus says this in prayer. John 17, verse 3, he says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17, verse 3. That's what life is. Life is knowing God. I mean, real life, eternal life, is knowing God through the Son of God. It's having a blessed relationship with God. And again, Jesus can make this claim about himself. I am the life. Because it's in him and it is only in him that that kind of relationship with God is possible. I am the resurrection and the life. So you notice how personal this claim is. It's not just that there is resurrection and life. It's not just that Jesus gives resurrection and life. It's that he is the resurrection and the life. In other words, those realities... Those gracious gifts from God, they are so inextricably bound up with who he is and what he is and what he came to do that it can be said, he can say that he practically embodies them. This is intensely personal. And by the way, let me say, that very same thing is true of all of those other I am claims in the Gospel of John. They're all personal. They all have to do with who Jesus is. So, for example, it's not just that he gives spiritual nourishment. It's, I am the bread of life. Or again, it's not just that he gives light to live by. It's, I am the light of the world. And you can keep going. It's not just that he gives access to salvation. It's, I am the door of the sheep. It's not just that he gives spiritual provision and protection. It's, I am the good shepherd. It's not just that he gives access to the Father. It's, I am the way and the truth and the life. And one more, it's not just that he gives vitality that then courses through our spiritual veins. It's, I am the true vine. They're all personal like this. All of these realities, all of these gracious gifts from God, they are bound up in him, including resurrection and life. And isn't this crucial? I mean, the the personal character of this claim, isn't this crucial when it comes to facing death? Remember, this is something Jesus says to a woman who's grieving her dead brother. And in that moment, he doesn't just have comforts to give that are somehow removed from himself, in that moment he gives himself. He draws near. He directs her gaze to himself. It's as if he says, Martha, stop looking at that tomb for a moment and look at me. He gives himself. He draws near. And that is so crucial when it comes to facing death. To have a comforter like that. 
One of the most gut-wrenching aspects of this whole COVID nightmare has been the overwhelming number of people who have been in the position of facing death alone. In some cases, even the doctors and nurses couldn't be in the room. And why? Why is that so gut-wrenching? Why is that even hard for us to contemplate right now? It's because we have this sense that that's something you want to face with somebody holding your hand. With somebody looking into your eyes. Someone who knows you and loves you. Not just drugs and machines. You want a person. We want somebody there. Well, for the Christian... In Jesus, that's exactly what we've got. No Christian believer dies truly alone. In Jesus, we have a somebody. We have a person. We have a person who knows us and loves us. We have a person who holds our hand and who looks into our eyes even in the face of death. You might even say for the Christian, it's possible in those moments to gaze away from death and to look into his face. He says, look at me. I got you. I'm holding you. Look at me. I am the resurrection and the life. So that's first. That's the claim. And then what's second? On the heels of the claim comes the promise. Look at what he says next. There in the middle of verse 25. The promise. He says, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's no wonder that these words have always meant so much to God's people. It's no wonder that these words are engraven on the hearts and minds of God's people in the face of death. And I say that Because this is practically poetic. It's not just the truth that's expressed here. It's also the way it's expressed. This is rhythmic. This is lyrical. It's words dancing beautifully. It's even the meaning of words turning and changing as the dance goes on. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In other words, for the believer, though he experiences physical death, still he knows God. And remember, that's life. Still he knows God, and he always will, whoever believes in me. Though he die, yet shall he live. And then it turns. Then it changes. What does he say next? Verse 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So now you see death means something else. There at the end of verse 26, death isn't physical death. Now death is alienation from God. And the believer will never be alienated from God again. The believer will never find himself cast back out into the realm of the wrath of God ever again. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the promise. And that is a promise 
that we desperately need. I'll admit that death seems to be more on my own mind lately. And I don't think it's just because of the memorial services I've attended lately, though that's part of it, no doubt. To some degree, it's also because of COVID. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that. I'm sure a lot of people are more mindful of mortality these days. It's in the air. For me, it's also because of what's become my somewhat regular morning routine. I get up, I make some coffee, I fill my coffee tumbler, I pop in my AirPods, and I set out for my regular morning walk, and I listen to Scripture as I make my walk. And the route I often take, it takes me past the cemetery there on Main Street. And sometimes I, I walk through the cemetery. And I will say, it is a very powerful thing to walk through a cemetery as you have the words of Scripture ringing in your ears. And in that cemetery there on Main Street, there is one stone, one gravestone that stopped me the first time I saw it. It's over on the west side of the cemetery. It's a dark stone with big white engraved letters so it stands out. Even at a distance, you can see the last name standing out. And the last name is Wolf. And I mean it's Wolf with an E. And as you get closer, you see that it's Joseph Francis Wolfe, born July of 1933, died June of 1997. He was only 63, served in the army in Korea. That's all I know about him. But his stone stopped me. Upper left corner of the stone, there's an image of a Bible. Upper right corner, there's an image of a cross. Along the bottom, it just says, In God's Care, Joseph Francis Wolfe. But I think it's the other side of the stone that really gets me. Because if you walk around to the other side of the stone, all it says is, Wolf. That's it. Wolf with an E, just the last name. And when I'm standing there looking at that stone, that side of the stone, it's not hard to imagine. And you stop and think about all of the people you know and love who bear that name. And the thought that one day they'll be resting under a stone of their own with that name on it. And I will too. And maybe the stone will even look like that one. And that is a moment when I need a promise. 
as I'm taking all of that in, that is a moment when I need a promise to steady me and hold me. And here I've got one. In John 11, I've got it. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The last time I walked through the cemetery, I queued up John 11 on my phone. And I listened to those words as I was standing there looking at that stone. Call it sermon research. That's the promise. A promise that I needed then, that I need every day, and you do too. That's the promise. And then as I'm standing there, looking at that stone, and by the way, this brings us to point number three. As I'm standing there, looking at the stone, then I hear in my ears what Jesus says next. He asks, do you believe this? That's the question. That's our third point. So after the claim, I'm the resurrection and the life, and after the promise, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. After all of that, that's when he asks, do you believe this? He asks Martha. He asks me. He asks you. Do you believe this? This is surely... One of the most remarkable moments in this whole episode in John 11. Here's this woman who's grieving the loss of her own brother. And Jesus, he doesn't just make this claim about himself. And and he doesn't just pronounce this promise about life and death. He actually asks her in that moment, if we can put it this way, he has the holy nerve. To ask this grieving woman in that moment, do you believe this? He questions her. He challenges her. And no doubt he asked it with all of the compassion that the moment called for. Do you believe this? That's the question. And notice why that's so meaningful on the heels of what he just said. The promise. Because remember, it was a promise for... Believers, whoever believes in me shall live. Whoever believes in me shall never die. Here he's saying, Martha, is that you? Martha, are you numbered in that company? Let's stop thinking about Lazarus for a minute. Martha, what about you? Do you believe this? This promise that I've just pronounced, does it fit you? Do you fit Do you match the promise? Do you believe in me? That's the question. And that is the perennial question of the gospel. It's still the case that Jesus is the one who asks it. It's not just the claim and the promise that are personal. The question is as well. To be sure, it's through the scriptures now. But the reality that's mediated through the scriptures is a kind of face-to-face. It's Jesus asking you, asking me, do you believe this? Do you believe in me? We're asked all sorts of questions, aren't we, about where we stand on this or that. It could be a job interview. It could be a political survey. Where do you stand on this? What's your view on that? 
Could be a father who's got just a few short questions for the young man who wants his daughter's hand. And by the time the father gets to question number 35 and it's multiple choice, that bare swinging light bulb in the interrogation room is starting to feel really warm. Where do you stand? What's your view? We get all these questions from time to time, but there is no question like this one. And there is no questioner like this one. There's no interview like this one. The Son of God looks you in the eye and says, do you believe? Do you believe in me? Like no other question you could possibly be asked, this one is a way of saying, who are you? Who are you really? Jesus, who makes a claim about himself and puts himself forward, then asks the question, what about you? Who are you really? Do you believe in me? That's the question. And then happily, fourthly, finally, that brings us to the answer. Martha's answer, after the claim, after the promise, after the question, what's her answer? Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world So Martha gets it, even if there's so much right now that she can't get, even if she can't fully understand, she gets it. She gets him. She says, yes, Lord, I believe in you. You see, the answer is personal because the claim was and the promise was and the question was, her answer is personal. Yes, I believe in you. She says, I believe that you are the Christ, which means he's the anointed one. She says, I believe that you're the son of God, which means he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. She says, I believe that you're the one who's coming into the world, which means God was keeping his promise. He'd promised to send a savior into the world, and now Martha's looking at him. He's standing right in front of her. That was her answer. And bear in mind where we are in the story when she gives this answer. For me, one of the most powerful aspects of this whole story is the fact when Jesus and Martha are having this back and forth, she doesn't know at this point that she's about to get her brother back. Jesus knows, and as Bible readers, we know, but as Bible readers, we can also forget that Martha doesn't yet know. She's the one who starts talking about the last day. Apparently, she doesn't know yet what's about to happen this very day. But she's about to get her brother back. And that, too, how perfect is that as a, as a picture of the gospel? That, too, is a perennial aspect of the call of the gospel. You don't know what's going to happen today. You don't know what God's going to give to you or take from you today. And it's in the midst of that uncertainty that Jesus looks you in the eye and says, but are you certain about me? Because that's all you need. Do you believe in me? 
Do you believe this claim about me and this promise in me? And you've got to answer that question knowing full well that you don't know full well what a day may bring, including this one. The Bible says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. And Jesus says, the question is, do you boast in me today, right now? That's all you need. So, brothers and sisters, that's what we've got here in these three verses. The claim, the promise, the question, the answer. Is that your answer today? The one that Martha gave. The claim hasn't changed. It's still true. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he still is. The promise hasn't changed. It's still true. Whoever believes in me shall ever live and never die. The question hasn't changed. Do you believe this? Do you believe in him? So what's your answer? And let me say, that that could mean saying yes to Christ for the very first time in your life. I mean, coming to Christ out of unbelief today. And if that's where you are today, let's talk. And let's talk soon. I'd love to talk with you about it. Or it could be that you're already a Christian and you have been for a long, long time. And it means looking your beloved Savior in the eye again and telling him again, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe in you. Lord, I don't know what you've got for me today, what you're going to give to me, what you're going to take from me, what you're going to bring my way today, but I believe in you. Christian, yours is the hope of heaven and the resurrection of the body. And that is stronger than death. I wish you could have known Joy Evans. Remarkable woman. The way her her children paid tribute to her in that memorial service was so lovely. She she was the same woman at home that she was with the rest of us. She had this way of finding a connection with somebody, and when she found it, she held on to it. And it was her way of holding on to you. And sure enough, when the pastor of the First United Methodist Church of Collingswood, New Jersey, got Joy's service started, one of the very first things he said was, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Of course, of course he started the service that way. We needed that. And I wish you could have known George, George Godfrey, remarkable man. Our family connected with his years before I was born. He was one of the ministers at our family's Methodist church there in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. He touched so many lives, had this warm, funny, personable way that brought you in. And sure enough, when the pastor of St. John's United Methodist Church of Seaford, Delaware, got George's service started two days ago, the very first thing she said was, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I mean the very first words out of her mouth. And not only that, but then a few minutes later when another minister stepped up to the pulpit to preach a brief message, guess where he went in the Bible? John 11. And at that point, I 
just looked up and smiled. Because just a few hours before, I'd been working on this sermon and listening to John 11 while I stood by a gravestone with my name on it. By the way, in George's memorial service, there was also a corporate reading of Psalm 23 in the King James. I was a team player. I read what I was supposed to. There was a part of me that wanted to distribute Dave's translation and say, you know, it doesn't actually say green pastures. (laughs) But it didn't seem like the time. But just remember Psalm 23. The one who goes down with you into those valleys of very deep darkness. And maybe that valley is a well-lit, sun-bathed cemetery. Is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we believe, help our unbelief. You are the resurrection and the life. We believe the claim. We believe the promise. We hear the question. And we mean it when we say, Lord, thank you for asking. And thank you for the grace that has worked in us, the answer of faith. We believe. Would you strengthen our faith even this day? And we ask it for your glory among us. Amen.